Our text tonight is from Ephesians 6, 14, if you want to open up there, but we'll look at a few other texts as well. Ephesians 6, 14. I actually got to memorize that this week because it's nice and short. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Let's pray. It's good, the words that we sang, Father, that we wither and perish, but you never fail. You never fail. And even though we're going to talk about some armor tonight that you've provided for us and how we can stand in the fight that's upon us, our hope is not in ourselves. We're like the grass of the field that withers and perishes, but you never fail. And our hope is in you. And we hope in you such that we will mount up with wings like eagles even when we feel weak. So come and do your work in our midst tonight, Lord. I even feel some of the weakness that Paul mentions later in the chapter when he asks the Ephesians, humbly asks them to remember him in prayer, that his mouth would be opened to boldly proclaim the gospel. And so I pray that you would be the opener of my mouth tonight and that for everyone listening here, that you'd be openers of our minds so that we can understand the truth. And Lord, open our hearts that we might rejoice at this truth, that we might rejoice at seeing you And then, Lord, open our hands so that we can go from this place and live out your truth, that we can be your ambassadors in this world. So we're asking for a lot, we're expecting a lot, but you're a great God and you're sufficient for this. So we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Word of God comes to us in a historical form. There's always the need to be applying God's Word to our daily lives, is there not? We need God's Word applied to our daily lives But we can never do this at the expense of recognizing that this is a historical book and that there are words in this book. So at the seminary, we talk about things like historical grammatical interpretation. Sounds fancy. It's really simple. Okay, Grammatical, that the words mean something together. So we're going to talk about some words tonight. But I really wanted to emphasize the historical part for a moment and recognize this book was not written yesterday. It was not written 200 years ago or so when this nation was begun. It was written 2,000 years ago. So sometimes we have a little bit of work to do. We have to, we have to do some study. We have to get back there and understand the context in which the book was given. And I think that by doing that, I mean, you can do that by looking at uh, study notes and Bibles. Bible dictionaries are good tools. Oftentimes people look at commentaries, and that's what uh, people do when they're about to teach on these things. But I I found a little uh, video clip that we're going to watch. And I hope that uh, just by visualizing some of these things, I I happen to be a visual learner a lot of the time. I hope by visualizing some of these things that as the rest of this series goes on, it'll bring pictures to your minds about what Paul might have been seeing when he wrote this passage. You remember last week, Pastor Troy talked about the very fact that Paul may have even been chained to a guard, a Roman legionary, while he was writing this. Okay, so this is a very visual thing, and so I want us to get a little bit of a visual picture. So we're going to watch this short clip, and then I'll come back and we'll walk through the text together. The basic dress of this legionary is the same as that of almost every Roman, a tunic and sandals. A tunic is a long woolen shirt, girded around the middle with a leather belt or strap. For underwear, he may use a loincloth and a linen tunic.
His military sandals, called Kalagai, have been cut from a single piece of leather. The thick sole has hobnails. This prevents the sandals from wearing down and it gives him a firm grip on slippery soil. In addition, he wears a scarf to protect his neck and shoulders from the sharp edges of his armour. During the cold winter months, Placidus may wear several long-sleeved tunics, trousers and woolen socks. A warm woolen cloak will protect him against the wind and rain. Being a legionary soldier, Placidus is of course well armed, but his body is also very well protected by a helmet, armour and a shield. His body armour, or lorica, is made of iron plates riveted to heavy leather straps on the inside of the harness, so they won't break easily during a fight. A lorica consists of four parts. The two shoulder pieces and two body pieces can be taken apart for easy maintenance and transportation. When the armour is assembled, Placidus can put it on like a jacket. The lorica is fastened with leather straps that run through the hooks at the front and back. It weighs almost 10 kilos, but because the different parts move along with the body movement and the weight is spread evenly over the upper body, he can wear it in relative comfort all day long. This type of segmented armor offers very good protection against both slashing and stabbing weapons. The military belt, which is called a kingulum, ensures the weapons remain firmly in place. The belt is made of leather and has metal plates both for decoration and reinforcement. At the front is an apron of leather straps, decorated with metal discs and pendants. On his head, Placidus wears a helmet, or galia. It is made of iron or sometimes of a brass alloy. The helmet is designed to offer maximum protection to the soldier's head. A neck plate, ear guards, cheek pieces and a brow band all help to defer or cushion the blow of an enemy weapon. The helmet is tightened with a leather strap under the chin. The shield or scutum measures about one meter high and weighs six kilograms. It is constructed of three different wooden layers glued together. The shield is covered in linen or leather and painted in bright colors. The edges are protected by metal strips making the shield more solid. The scutum is lifted with the left hand. The iron shield boss at the front protects the soldier's hand and can be used to punch the enemy in the face. Because the shield is held by a horizontal grip, Placidus can easily maneuver it and use the shield in different ways. Its curved shape provides excellent body coverage. With its helmet, armor and shield, Placidus is well protected from head to toe. Placidus carries different weapons. During long training sessions, he has learned to use them well. When confronted with an enemy army, the legionaries start their attack by throwing their pillar. This javelin has several remarkable characteristics. The iron tip has the shape of a pyramid. Not only does it inflict nasty wounds, it is also very difficult for the enemy to pull it out of his shield, leaving him no other option than to throw it away. 
The iron shaft of the javelin is very thin, so the spear can pass through the enemy's shield to penetrate the person behind it. After the pilum is launched at the enemy, Placidus takes out his primary weapon, the gladius, a short stabbing sword. Like every soldier, he carries the gladius on the right side to prevent the legionaries, who fight in close ranks, from hindering each other when they pull it out of the scabbard. The grip of the gladius is made of wood or bone. The scabbard consists of two thin wooden planks covered with leather. The metal decorations not only make the sword more beautiful, they make the scabbard stronger. The gladius looks small but can inflict terrible wounds. Because of its small size, Placidus can stab very quickly and precisely in the thick of the fight. On the left side of his belt he carries a dagger, a pugio. This is not a standard legionary's weapon. Placidus has brought it from the pay he has saved. Sword, belt and dagger are sometimes silvered or enameled and decorated with beautifully engraved images. I hope Placidus there will help you visualize some of these things as we talk about each of the individual pieces over the next few weeks. I, have my, I happen to have my, my leather-clad gladius here, so. <laughs> but we're not going to be looking at that. We're actually going to be looking at what that was hung from. We're going to be looking at the belt of truth tonight. So here at the end of Ephesians 6, we're, we're in Paul's final exhortation to a church that he loved dearly. Of all the churches that Paul spent time with, it's arguable that Ephesians might be one of the most well-loved. He spent the most time with these people. And his dearly loved son in the faith, Timothy, who traveled around with him, was actually sent there by Paul to be the pastor of this congregation. So Paul has invested a lot in these people. And he's very concerned for them. He's concerned about the wolvish attacks of false teachers. He's, he's, a, he's afraid about the sneak of just subtle heresies that, that creep into the church and the thinkings of people. And so he ends with this exhortation, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might, and put on the whole armor of God. And the purpose of putting on the armor, as we just saw in the video clip, was to be able to stand, right? To be able to stand in the attacks of the enemy. So we've got to keep this in mind, that this is not just a neat historical study that we're doing here. This is a study of battle earnest. You don't get dressed like that to go walking around the marketplace. You get dressed like that when someone's coming at you with sword and spear and arrow. So standing in the spiritual battle means that for us, we must be people of truth. To stand in the spiritual battle, we must be people of truth, for whom the truth is principle. The truth is pervasive, and the truth is protection. We must be people of truth, and the truth is principle, or primary, or first. I'm not sure about you, but I'm probably not the only person that doesn't put my belt on first. Okay? When you're getting dressed in the morning, probably the belt is one of the last things you put on. And yet when Paul starts his description, that's the first thing that he goes to. So I want to draw two observations from the fact that Paul puts this in the primary position, okay? He's going to talk about the belt of truth first. Why would he do that? Well, what I'm, what I'm inferring from this is that Paul is not, is not drawing this primary uh, attribute from the illustration of the soldier. He's drawing it from the attributes he wants to tell us. 
I mean, if we were going to talk about a Roman soldier, we might do it in that order, the order you get dressed in, okay? But, but that's not what Paul's doing. He doesn't go head to toe, or head to toe, he doesn't go bottom up. What, what he does is, um, he's going to start with the attributes that are most important. So, for example, we could ask the question of the text, why are the elements presented in the order they're presented? Why does truth come first? Well, again, it's not because a belt is necessarily the most important piece of the armor, but for us, truth may be the primary attribute that Paul wants us to consider as we're looking at this. Okay? And then secondly, we need to observe here that we're going to consider a piece of armor in distinction from another. Now, if Placidus, in that video, had just gone out with his belt on, do you think he would be ready for battle? Do you think he'd be ready to stand in the fight? Of course not. Of course not. A piece of armor is a protective piece, but it's part of a unit. So over the next few weeks, we're going to be studying that whole unit. But there is value. There is value in looking at the individual pieces. And there is value for us in looking at these individual attributes. So again, we're going to talk about truth. We're going to talk about righteousness. We're going to talk about faith. We're going to talk about the word of God. We're going to talk about the gospel. We're going to talk about all these things. And they all have to come together. Remember, again, it's take up the whole armor of God. It's not just take up individual pieces selectively here, this and that. If we miss something, Troy emphasized this a lot last week, and it was helpful. If we, if we miss something, that's where the enemy's going to come at us. Okay? So we've got, we got to take these things together. And I think you can also see this if, if you've thought about some of these other elements with how they're related. For example, truth. Okay, take the belt of truth. And then we also have the feet, and those are covered with the gospel. And then we have, we have the word of God. Okay, so word of God, gospel, truth. Those are all pretty related ideas, are they not? We, we, we would relate those ideas together. But again, it's going to be value for us to distinguish truth tonight. So later on in the sermon, you'll hear me distinguishing truth from these other two. Not that it actually is distinct. Okay? It's not actually something separate, but we need to look at it separately because I think there is some value in this. So the point that Paul is emphasizing by putting the belt of truth first is that truth is the principal piece of armor, not necessarily the most important, but it's the principal one. He's putting it first because deception and lies are the first weapon of our enemy. Okay? Paul is going to put truth as the first piece of armor he lists because deception and lies are the first weapon of our enemy. This past week, uh, during dinner time, there was a knock at our door, and I answered it, and two ladies were standing there with Bibles in their hands. I thought, oh, this will be good. So one started to ask me if I ever said the Lord's Prayer. I said, yes, I do, quite often. And then she asked me, pointing to the open page in her Bible, if I desired to see God's kingdom come. I said, of course. I am waiting for the day when Jesus comes back, sets up his kingdom, and I'm so happy that right now I can actually be a participant of that kingdom. But before they could go on with any more of their questions, I had a question back for them, and so I just simply asked them, do you mind if I ask you, who do you say that Jesus is, the one who taught us to pray this? And this time, the other lady that was there at the door answered, and she said, he's the son of God. And I said, well, I, I, I actually agree. But I pressed a little bit farther, and I asked, well, what does that mean? Do you actually think that Jesus is divine? And her answer was simple. Her answer was straight, but her answer was no. 
And these two women at my door were not sisters in Christ. They were ladies that Paul had written about in his letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4.4, where he said, in their case, the God of this world, that's the devil, okay, Ephesians 6, we're talking about these principalities and powers, okay, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, okay, what is the light of the gospel? Of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, okay, they were, they were blinded. These women at my door were not my enemies, okay? We're talking about enemies coming at us. We've got to be ready because enemies are coming at us. But these women were not my enemies. These women had been deceived by the enemy. And they were actually going around spreading that deception that Jesus was not actually God come in the flesh. So I didn't, I didn't have anger or enmity in my heart towards them, but pity. And we prayed for them. And I have prayed for them subsequently the rest of the week. But I think that helps us see that lies and deception, especially for them, it was this, the issue of who is Jesus. They'd been deceived about who Jesus was. Lies and deception are the first attack of the enemy, and that's why Paul puts truth as the first piece of armor he wants us to consider. And I think that's also something that we get straight out of the Bible, too, not just from my experience this week. Okay, think about the first record of sin, Genesis chapter 3. Well, first of all, in Genesis 2, 16 to 17, God says this to Adam. He says, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Okay, it's pretty emphatic. You shall surely die. And notice he said, every tree is yours except this one. Okay, rejoice in all the other trees except this one. But if you eat of that you shall surely die. Well, chapter 3 of Genesis starts out this way, that the serpent enters the garden. Okay, notice it was, it was a serpent. He doesn't come in like a fire-breathing dragon that we're ready to fight against. You know, that's obviously, we, we got to stop that. He comes in as a serpent. And it says that he was more crafty than any other beast of the field that Yahweh God had made. He was more crafty. And he approaches the woman, and his first line to her is, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, what he said there is not actually wrong, per se, but he's flipped it on its head. God said, you can eat of every tree in the garden except this one. And he said, did God really say you should not eat of any tree? He's, he's casting it in a negative light here. And he's sowing seeds of doubt and deception in her mind. And when she comes back and gives her answer to him... He comes back even more bold-faced. He says, you will not surely die. That's a lie. That's directly contrary to what God said. It's fundamentally not true, and he was attacking her very soul. He was going after the soul of our forebears. Now, there's a lot more that we could get from that text, but I think you'll clearly see that our enemy is the father of lies, John 8, 48. He is out to deceive the nations, Revelation 20, verse 3. Truth is the principal attribute for Christians standing in the fight because deception and lies are the primary weapon of our enemy. We need to understand that. And that's why I think Paul starts with truth. Not because the idea of a belt is most important, but because truth. Truth is what he wants to bring out first. 
And if truth is going to be this principal attribute, it also needs to be pervasive. It needs to be pervasive. So let's look at the text. If you still got your finger in the text, I'll open up to it with you. Ephesians chapter 6. And we're looking at verse 14. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. And now the word in Greek, there's not a lot of words in our verse tonight. So we're going to look at a few words here, if you don't mind. The word in Greek is perizonumi, and it's made up of two words. You might recognize the first part, peri, like think of the word perimeter, okay? It means the distance around something, okay? So it's the idea of putting something around you, wrapping something around. And then the end of that word is just, a, it's, a, it's related to the word for belt, okay? So, I mean, the translation here is just fine to like wrap around a belt, but that's the only word. Wrapping truth around your waist. I actually like the way that the King James translates this because it gets really close to the way the Greek words are here, but it's going to sound a little funny, so hang on. It says, having your loins girt about with the truth, or to make it more our language, having your waist wrapped around with the truth, okay? The truth needs to be wrapped around us. I think that's why Paul chose the idea of a belt to illustrate truth. He chose the idea of the belt because you wrap this belt around you. You bind things together with it. It helps hold you together. Truth needs to get all around us. Now, up to this point, though, I've kind of been relying on you to assume a definition of truth. We've just been assuming the definition of truth so far. But think about that. How would you define truth? It's not that easy of an idea to put words on. What, what is truth? And we, we know when something is true, and we know when something is false, but when we have to define that, it, it's a little more difficult. Uh, let me give it a crack here. I, I would say that truth is, is that which corresponds with reality, that which has a right representation, a right relationship with reality, the way things are. Something is true if it's the way things really are. And that's why, for Christians, we can make sense of these statements. For example, Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the truth, didn't he? In 1 John 5, 6, it says, The Spirit is the truth. And about the Father, it writes in uh, John, 1 John 5, 20, The Son of God has come that we may know Him who is true. Okay? So the the Son of God came to reveal the Father so that we may know Him who is true. So here we have the New Testament describing each of the three persons of our triune God as the truth. Now, does this make sense of our definition? Does my definition hold up with this? Well, I think it does. God is the truth. He is ultimate reality. Before Him there was not And without him, there would be nothing. John 1, 1 to 3. He is the Alpha and Omega, the first and last, the beginning and end. Revelation 22, 13. He speaks and things come to pass. And if he were to stop speaking, there wouldn't be anyone left to question him. Because why? He upholds the universe by the word of his power. If he were to stop speaking, there wouldn't be anybody to question him. Truth is is what corresponds with reality. And we understand as Christians that God is ultimate reality. So truth is that which perfectly corresponds with God. So it's perfectly right for the scripture to say God is 
truth. But what does it mean now for us to stand in a battle with having truth wrapped around us? What does that look like? Well, again, I said we were going to consider how this relates to those other pieces of the armor. Okay, so first, what the feet are covered with the gospel, right? Now, what is the gospel? The good news about how God saves sinners through the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus and our faith in him. Okay, this is the good news. And it's true. It's the truth. If you're going to get saved, this is the way. This message, the gospel message, corresponds with reality about how people get saved. It's truth. But it's not the whole truth, right? It's not everything that's true. It's the true message about salvation. So it's, the, it's part of truth, okay? And let's consider one of the other pieces, the Word of God, okay? The sword of the Spirit, which hangs from that belt, like we saw in Placidus there. It hangs from the belt. It is, uh, in John 17, it says, Your Word is truth, Jesus says to the Father, your word is truth. So we look at the word of God and we can say, this is truth. This is truth. It doesn't say everything that's true. This book doesn't tell us everything that's true. But when it speaks, it speaks truly. It speaks the truth for God. And we actually know that God, being its author, is the truth. Okay? So this is a true book, but it doesn't address all of truth. So again, I said we were going to talk about how these relate. The gospel is the true message about salvation. This book addresses true things, vital things we need to know. But the truth is a bigger thing. It's a bigger idea, that which corresponds with reality. And truth needs to be something we have wrapped around us. It needs to be a pervasive piece of armor that's going to completely define our life as we stand in the fight. And so that reminds us that truth is not just primary it's not just the first thing Paul mentions. It's not just a pervasive piece that's supposed to cover us all around. But truth is protection. Truth is protection. Okay, This is a piece of armor. One of the commentaries I read this week said something that, that helpfully summarized. So hang with me for these couple sentences here. Quote, This piece of armor is basic. Okay, I called it principle. It's, but he's saying the word basic. This piece of armor is basic to all other pieces because truth and trustworthiness are basic to all the other qualities believers need in order to withstand diabolical attacks. Truth is basic to the others. And then he goes on, as believers internalize the truth, as believers internalize the truth, they live and move in it. Indeed, the truth that we live in is like armor. Okay? So that's why I love having that visual, that, that truth, as we internalize it, it's like we're living and moving inside this realm of truth, and truth becomes like armor to us. We don't want to glamorize war. It's a horrible thing. I'm sure Paul would rather use another analogy to talk about life, but he uses this analogy of war because it's true, because that's really what's going on. There really is a battle for our souls. Satan really did sneak into the garden and lie to Adam and Eve because he wanted them to die. And he's doing that to us. This is a real battle where heaven and hell hang in the bloody balance. So if we want to be ready for the fight, we need to be people that are surrounded by truth, that are characterized by truth, that have internalized it and live and move in the realm of truth. And if we had been reading through the book of Ephesians, I really like what it said just a little bit earlier. It said in uh, uh, 5, 
18 and 19 talks about being filled with the Holy Spirit. So Paul commands the Ephesians to be filled with the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 5, 18. And that's that idea. Remember, the Spirit is truth. And if Paul says, be filled with the Holy Spirit, he's telling you, be filled with truth. It's not all. The Holy Spirit is much bigger than that. But he, he, he means be filled with truth. That it is something that we live in, is inside of us, it's controlling us, it's defining us as Christians. So, again, we can't consider this piece of armor alone. And I'm excited to listen through the, the next sermon uh, in the series with you as we consider how all these pieces work together. But let's remember that truth is principle. Okay? It's, very, it's put first because the deception and lies of the enemy are the first weapon he's going to come at us with. And we need to be ready for that. We need to be ready with truth. We need people that know and, in, and live in the truth. Truth is protection for us. I wanted to end with the words of this hymn that just kind of capture some of these ideas for us. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Take up the whole armor. Prepare for the fight. For powers of darkness have covered the land whose wicked devices we now must withstand. Go forth dressed in righteousness and girded with truth, a helm of salvation and peace underfoot. Take faith as your shield and God's word for the fray. Keep watch at all times and in vigilance pray. Built firm on the rock of his authority, the church and its captain are holding the key to loose darkened souls from their bondage to sin and to bind up the broken and heal them within. May our God be gracious and shine upon us that his way be known from the east to the west. Our cry shall resound, let the nations be glad. So onward we will march till they worship the Lamb. Would you pray with me? Our God and Father, we want to be a people of truth. We want that to be the realm in which we live. We want it to be inside us. We want to be filled with your Holy Spirit. We want the word of Christ to dwell in us richly so that we have an answer ready so that we're protected from the lies and deceptions of the enemy, even when we don't know that that deception is coming upon us, that we, we would just have a sense by your spirit and by the truth that's in us that something is wrong here. Something that does not correspond with reality is, is trying, to, trying to take control of me. I pray that you would protect us in this way and that you'd keep us faithful to coming back to your word. You'd keep us earnest in prayer so that we are very near to the truth. So help us this week. Help us to stand firm in the fight. And Lord, would you use us in loosing darkened souls from their bondage to sin? Would you, would you use us to free others from the deception, from the blinding power of the enemy? We need your help in all these things. But we're grateful for a great Savior, Jesus. And in his name we pray. Amen. Anything else?